Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, another entrepreneur from Europe and this one comes from Germany. And I think that we're going to learn quite a bit, you know, on how you scale from the early stages all the way to Series A and beyond. And then also how you're building your team, how you balance, you know, equity and debt, you name it. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Michael Casal. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Pleasure being here. Thank you very much. So born in Moscow and raised in Berlin. So tell us about this transition there and how was life growing up? Yeah, good. Yeah. So when I was a child, I came to Germany and uh, grew up in Berlin. Um, great time uh, at a French high school, actually. So if anybody wants to start speaking French to me, it's going to be bad by these days. But there used to be a time where... I uh, actually did my French baccalaureate as well. Um, so yeah, that time was great. Very cool. And was there like anyone in your family that was an entrepreneur or into business or how did you develop like this love, let's say for like economics or, or law, which, you know, you would study later on? Yeah. So in my family, there are um, almost only entrepreneurs, right? So um, except well, my father was a, was a doctor, but, the uh, um, my stepfather is an entrepreneur in, in, in Germany. My grandfather was an entrepreneur. So there was always about this um, the thinking that you, you you do your own thing and you figure out what that thing is in a way. And then why law? I mean, why why did you get that uh, curiosity for maybe like studying law? I always wanted to to study law as a child. Actually, um, I thought uh, law was was uh, was amazing and you know studying law in Heidelberg you know was always kind of that thing and when I came about when I was a little bit older I got interested into more you know economics and you know heard about game theory and I thought okay this is really fun but one thing I noticed about when so I started out studying economics I figured out that the um, the normal course of studies are probably suited towards a normal student who would invest maximum 40 hours a week into studying and then party the rest and so forth. But I wasn't interested so much in, in, in partying. And I thought, you know, this is precious time. I can learn stuff and I may as well study something else on top of it uh, because this will 
maybe be another 40 hours. So I have 80 hours to invest uh, or so. Um, so that's why I said, okay, let's put law on top of it. And um, it worked out really well. Those two things are very, very different in a way. For economics, it's kind of heavy at the beginning. You need to attend lectures. Law is uh, not so heavy at the beginning, but very heavy at the end. But you can learn a lot from the books. And I don't know, law came always easy. You know, it's actually a lot of the solutions written in the in the in the in the laws um, themselves, right? So if you can just deduct the solution precisely, you can do well. And um, so I succeeded to that. And yeah, economics, I don't know, also came very naturally. And I thought that was always a very good. A combination because um, a lot of the things in law are about, you know, incentives and deterring and a good economics education just broadens your perspective on the world. Absolutely. And, and, and also becoming a lawyer in, in Germany is, is really tough. I mean, it's a like double, I don't know how many more years than what you would do, let's say, in Spain or in the U.S. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. So becoming a lawyer was a no-no then. After a while, right? Because you then be <laughs> okay. stuck. Yeah, 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 that was no, no, right? You, I just wanted to get the, the the legal theory, and never wanted to actually practice law because you'll be stuck in one jurisdiction, and you know I didn't want to do that. And you always do this, the first degree, which is your state examination, and then you need to practice and be a clerk for two years and do another second one. So I didn't do the the clerkship stuff, right? So I did my the, the yeah. theory, the first state examination, and then I thought that was a good. Good education. I got the, the most out of those four or five years at university, and that was my intention. Of course. And, I mean, you got your feet wet. I mean, you were a summer associate in places like Linklater's or Latham & Watkins. But then you did your Ph.D. I mean, your Ph.D. in economics. Uh, and I know that at one point you received a call that changed the course of everything. What was that call? Yeah, that's right. So I think one thing um, you need to be... You, you need to do always in order to be very good at something is have a very strong imagination. Otherwise, there will be no motivation. So every time I was studying very hard for economics, I pictured myself, okay, I'm, you know, going to be, I'm going to do my PhD and this is going to be amazing. And then maybe I'll do go into, into science themselves. And, you know, the next day you study law and then you're, you're like, uh, okay, well, how is that journey going to look like? Right. So you always got to set right that imagination in a way, but Economics, I finished first and uh, kind of pursuing a PhD in economics, which I didn't finish, by the way, because of that call, which I want to tell you in a second about, um, was for me the next step. So I started out with a PhD uh, in economics at the Max Planck Institute in, in, in Munich. Um, didn't go to the Ch uh, Chicago uh, graduate school, which I got accepted and actually for economics, which I thought was always amazing. Um, and started that while finishing the, uh, the state examination in, in, in law. Um, but anyway, because I was pursuing different opportunities, I got this call from Goldman, uh, in, in, in London and, um, they, they were like, do you want to join us? Um, obviously I interviewed with them, but, um, and I had to make a decision within, you know, within a, within a day or so I got to give the people feedback. And I thought, okay, what's the what's the path forward here? You're gonna, you know, chunk through the PhD and then eventually become, you know, this or that, or uh, you want to go back to business and, you know, just cancel the stuff. And for me, the, the the question ultimately came down to how passionate are you about being an economics professor? Because once you study hard for economics, you have this imagination, and everything looks great if you're if you think about being a professor of economics at Harvard or MIT or so. 
but if in order to pursue that as a profession, you got to be fine. But well, but being a professor of economics at a tier three or tier five university, right? The the topic itself needs to be your passion. And for me, the question was, no, I don't want that. I either want to be a professor at a super prestigious university and so forth, or not at all. And that's clear. Then you're not passionate enough about the topic at hand, right? So the decision was clear. Then um, okay, then let's call it uh, let's call this a day and go to London and um, work at Goldman. Very cool. And obviously, you were working there for a couple of years in London. And I know that uh, these people were probably reading the Financial Times and you opted for reading, you know, media outlets like TechCrunch, which is not so much, you know, like the Wall Street stuff. Uh, and I know that that opened your eyes and, uh, you know, that, that helped you thinking into perhaps there was a different future for you. Wade. Yeah. So I, I quickly developed what is called a fear of missing out, right? Which is uh, something in here as well. I mean, Goldman is a great place, right? You have the good news about Goldman is you have a bunch of nerdy people there too, right? So it's not like you're 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 in the wrong place if you are um, if you're very curious. Let's put it this way. But the interests at, the, at some point are different, right? Some people like to read FT and then all the industrials and stuff like that. But at Goldman, there was this policy: after eight, you get free dinner. And obviously, as a, as a junior there, you, you you always work like super late. So you, everybody makes kind of use of that free dinner, and then you you sit at your desk. And I noticed everybody's using reading kind of something Financial Times and stuff. Except I would go and read only TechCrunch and uh, what are these startups doing? And I would develop the thought that well, I think I'm missing out on something here, um, which could be a lot more fun um, and a lot more learnings, right? So for me, the kind of primary pursuit was always to learn as much as possible. And I thought that um, this could be a very, very, very interesting, um, very interesting space, even faster pace than PE. Um, and yeah, and at some point, the, the thought of, you know, 10-year career progression means that I'm no longer at this desk, but uh, at this kind of office across this desk, you know, it just killed me. And um, I thought I'm going to try out something else. And um Went to Rocket for 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 a few months. And why why Rocket? I mean, obviously you had in the family entrepreneurial roots, and here you are questioning, you know, what you want to do with your life and you know with the future. Why did you decide to join someone else rather than to go at it? You know, when you were reading all all these stories on TechCrunch. Yeah, so I think the 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 the, the what you do in that in that instance, I think coming out of university. Um, Less and less people are, are doing that, but you're looking for uh, maximum uh, uh, learning at any moment in time, right? Uh, at the first place. So I thought I'm going to look into what Rocket is doing and how these people are doing it there uh, for 10 months, and then afterwards I either go back to London or do something else, right? But I thought that at this moment in time, I can learn uh, something uh, from there. Turns out that uh, it was a perfect decision because the 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 problem that I encountered by moving from London to Berlin is the one that sparked the um, the, 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 the problem that I'm solving today with Grover, um, and I ended up staying six months at rocket internet and then went at it myself. So I didn't lose it out on anything. And what were you doing at rocket Inter internet? I was launching a venture called spaceways, uh, internationally. So I was the head of rollout at spaceways, which is a box, uh, storage startup, um, where the, you declutter, help people declutter. Right, and then business this business will pick up your stuff in boxes, storage boxes, and then you pay six euro a month. And so, so decluttering was there. There was a precedent in the U.S. as well, 
Um, and my job was to roll out adventure internationally, right? So launched it in, in Sydney and in Toronto, Chicago, Paris, uh, um, London, uh, I forgot, and Singapore essentially, right? So every month you're somewhere else, like the complete opposite of, uh, of your work um, at an investment bank or so where you're in front of an Excel spreadsheet 24 hours a day. You suddenly yeah. travel and you launch and you negotiate with those three PLs and um, you give them your SLA and you prepare an SLA and so forth. So it was a great experience. And I think that for you also, this uh, opened your eyes and it was a very nice segue into Grover because you move back to Berlin and then, you know, you find yourself, you know, with all this tangible stuff and that makes you think, you know, like there's probably a, a better way to do this. So, so bring us through that thought process and through all the way that you incubated Grover and how you brought it to life. Yeah, absolutely. So I think once, one thing you always do between two jobs is you, you travel, right? So coming from London to Berlin, I spent a, uh, also a few weeks traveling. And just before that time when I arrived in Berlin, I was in Rome, right? So the uh, a three-day, four-day weekend costs you maybe 500 euros and you drive a Vespa all day. You have the time of your life. But then once you hit Berlin... You, you have this one-bedroom apartment, which is great, but suddenly you need to furniture it. Right? So for the first time in my life, I needed to furniture an apartment. Um, and it was clear that, okay, I will not need that particular uh, those things when I move back to London. I cannot take it anywhere uh, with me. My wife is not going to you know, want to have this in our together once we move together and so forth. My girlfriend back then. Um, so actually, I needed only for a short, you know, short period of time, like 10 months. And um, I definitely don't want to buy it. I definitely don't want to invest in it because I can create much more pleasure for myself, much more um, utility for myself by um, investing 3,000 euros in experiences rather than things. And I also don't want to commit to long-term debt and a loan because I don't want to pay back a debt on the product that I no longer use when I move back elsewhere. So I thought there should be something. Uh, there should be a service like Spotify or Netflix for physical things um, where you can exchange the the product that you're having um, uh, for the for the same monthly payment, right? Suddenly you can have things that are new to you while it's paying the same and suddenly you detach marginal utility from marginal cost because what is true and that's where it's good to be have a bit of an economic um, utility theory thinking is that um, typically things are most valuable to people when they are new and they become less valuable over time or with increased quantity. Um, and with our business model, with that business model, where you pay the same per month, which is a marginal cost, you incur uh, new things as you please. Um, you should be in a position as a consumer to be in an area where your, 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 your expected utility is always higher than your expected cost. So that's why, why I thought, okay, economic theories on our side. This makes total sense. Um, and it's time to liberate uh, people and to distribute uh, freedom uh, from debt to the people, giving leverage um, with the things that people need rather than uh, with debt so they can buy them. So how much time did it take from the minute that that you came up with this idea or you started to, con to question you know, like a better way to do it till the moment that you actually gave your notice at Rocket and, and decided to, 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 that, to really jump in, you know, all in on, on this idea? Yeah, so the problem came about in the summer of uh, 2014, really, right? So I started talking to, to, to uh, or complaining to, to my surroundings, like, oh, this is super inefficient and so forth. And um, 
back then I didn't know this could be a business model, uh, right? So I started with Rock and so forth, but the idea just grew and grew on me and, and, and developed. And I think it was then in the winter that uh, the noise of the, uh, the you, you got to do that. It's, it's, uh, that there's no two ways about it grew, grew a lot harder. Um, um, so I gave my notice uh, in, in January. And why did you go at it alone? I mean, obviously you're a solo founder here. I mean, being a solo founder is, is tough. Uh, so, so why did you go at it alone? Yeah, because uh, I, I don't know. I like to do, uh, I don't want to depend on, uh, on, 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 on realizing my imagination on the fact of whether or not I find a co-founder or not. Right. So that's not an option. I think if you if you have an idea and you're passionate about it and you want to execute on it, it should matter whether or not you have a, a co-founder. Now, for me personally, I think the um, when I started out, I actually was seeking around for, for a co-founder. I found one and um, I said, OK, let's do it together. And uh, but he jumped ship after a few weeks because he had another startup running and that seemed to take off back then. He said, hey, sorry, I'm going to leave you alone here. I said, okay, no problem. Um, right? So, but I think the, the premise of having co-founders, I mean, yes, if you find a person that can equally scale with you forever, that's great. But other than that, you're much better uh, off, I think, by assembling a perfect team at any moment in time. Got it. So then, so then what were the early days uh, like? And I guess before, you know, you walk us through the early days and how you assembled that team, I'd like to know, like, uh, for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of, of Grover? Like, how do you guys make money? So our business model is the monthly rental of uh, technology, of consumer electronics, right? So we went into technology back then. Also, my phone tanked in the sink and so forth. And technology is something that needs to proliferate uh, people, right? It's uh, humans and technology. Today, you cannot think about the one without the other in a way. So people need technology to be productive. Uh, children need iPads to make sure they can do education in school or schools need that. So technology is everywhere, whether this is productivity like iPads and computers or fun like consoles uh, or even connectivity like the new smart home. So technology is proliferating um, uh, everywhere. So the early days were like, OK, first of all, all things started. I need to see whether there are people uh, who would actually use that service if it was available. So getting the website up and running was the first thing, right? So this is where the, the co-founder kind of would come in place. Uh, the only person going forward, if I were to launch a new venture, I would say I would launch, I would look out for the best CTO out there who can build a website in just a weekend or so, right? That's the best thing. But in absence of that, you've got to work with freelancers. You've got to make sure the, the website gets up and running um, quickly. So you get the first um, people on your website to see whether anybody wants to actually transact. Um, and that's how the early days were looking like, right? So you, um, you contract with people who, who build a website, who build a, a brand around it, um, and you start attracting um, traffic. Very cool. So what, what, what was that, uh, that team? Like, how, how did the team, you know, started coming together and how did you go about building that team? Yeah, so in the early days, you go to uh, meetups. Right. You, um, at least this is what I did in 2015. Maybe going forward, I would do it differently. Um, but I went to a lot of meetups, really, you know, do a deep dive into this kind of startup culture. Um, and you, you meet other people who are looking to do something. Um, and then you, you, you find out as a designer who's looking to do something, 
uh, with a startup. So you bring them on board. Um, you still, you know, Upwork is great if you're looking for freelancers, by the way. Um, and you assemble a team. Uh, also was, you know, going to universities and uh, cold uh, talking to people. Are they, hey, you know, here's what I'm building. Do you want to join? Can you code? Uh, and so forth. So you, you really kind of hustle together a, a team of people uh, who can, you know, take step one with you. And in your case, I mean, it didn't really take much time to raise some money. So how, how much capital have you guys raised to date? So to date, we've raised uh, 300 million in capital, um, out of which uh, a big chunk uh, is asset-backed uh, debt financing for, uh, for the asset growth um, and equity is the remainder. Got it. And, and as I was mentioning, I mean, you guys raised the round, you know, the seed round in November, you know, the... the October Since founding date is uh, is April, so October yeah. November, but but pretty pretty uh, early on. So so can you walk us through how that fundraising journey has been for you guys? Yeah, sure. So first, you fund it yourself. That's what I did. So a lot of bootstrapping, financing it yourself, um, going about the first website, the first product shipments, but I also looked at early stage um, programs that you know. I could learn from, for example. And though one of those programs I found was SeedCamp. Uh, I, I saw it. I, I, I thought this is great. I went to London to to visit one of their um, initial demos, how they go about it, and then I applied. So you apply with a video and so forth. And they said, okay, come to our uh, Berlin uh, event, which was in uh, May 2015. Um, and we were one of the... Uh, first startups to be accepted. So they invested the first 25,000 euros uh, just a few months after the funding date. Very nice. And I know that for you guys, um, you know, then, you know, like you did your Series A and, you know, like you've, you've also like done like some really nice balancing between debt and equity. So so why, you know, did you guys like always keep in, in, in like close to mind having that balance of uh, having equity financing and debt financing? <laughs> So one of the things that uh, I did in, in uh, er, very early on in 2015 um, was that I was, uh, first of all, looking to work together with leasing companies. I thought, okay, um, maybe we can lease back products and leasing companies would be interested to, to work with us on that. And it turns out nobody was. Um, so that was the first thing. Second thing is I, I just asked in my network, uh, anybody knows a good leasing lawyer? Um, and one of my friends from university just finished an internship, actually, um, with one of the most renowned asset-backed financing lawyers in Europe that everybody apparently knows. And it was our luck, my luck, that uh, he took me seriously from the very beginning. So they met with me in a co-working space that um, that lawyer and, and one of his partners, uh, all senior partners, and they, they immediately said, look, we completely understand what you're doing. Um, this that makes total sense. And what you do with the consumer tech products, we do on a regular basis with cars. Like asset-backed transactions are vastly available in the, in the environment. Um, and we're going to set up together a structure, an asset-backed structure, asset-backed financing structure um, on the, your portfolio. It will just work like that as well. Uh, I thought, okay, this is amazing. This flies. And um, we started out um, working on that basis. So ever since... We're looking to, and always are, creating um, the consumer tech asset class, if you will, as a securitizable 
and debt fundable asset class um, that can by itself uh, be a security portfolio to a lender. So how do you think that founders, especially the ones that are listening to us, how do you think they should look at, you know, equity versus debt when building up their business? Yeah, it depends on the business, right? If you don't have any uh, fixed return assets to invest in, then you shouldn't take debt, right? Because it can also turn around um, the other way. Um, you should take equity, obviously, for and like we do for the purposes of business growth. But if you're building software, um, I think equity as a good valuation is um, always making sense. Now, there are multiple new debt instruments available for startups, but we ourselves haven't raised any debt on the business side of things, right? We always raise debt for the asset purposes only. Got it. Got it. And I know that in your guys' case, you know, I, I, I believe that there was a round that, uh, you know, got a little bit complicated, you know, with perhaps uh, some people backing out or maybe the timeline is not being met, you know, like when you guys anticipated. So I know that you had to, you know, put the, uh, the, the foot on the gas and accelerate a little bit more the process. And, and uh, yeah, so tell us what happened there and how did you guys turn it around? Yeah, so w one thing that... Uh complicates your fundraising in a scenario where you raise both equity uh, and debt and you want to make sure that you have a lot of headroom in your debt facility to make proper use of your equity in order to grow where you kind of finance also future uh, asset purchases is that at some point, especially at the beginning, one becomes uh, or can become or contingent upon the other, right? And um, assuming you have a long process on the debt side in place, which is you know about to finalize, and you're simultaneously finalizing uh, on the equity round. If one of those two pieces falls apart on short notice, uh, you obviously need to uh, find an alternative um, relatively quickly. So that's one of those things that, that happened to us, right? We were in a, in a expanded uh, uh, a process also on the debt side, and something happened suddenly, and then you want to make sure you have an instant alternatives in place, um, which we did in order to close the round successfully. Got it. And I guess in a in a marketplace or in a or in a platform like yours, you know, like where you have all these different products and and people that go in and you know and maybe like get it for a monthly you know like fee rather than buying it all in one go. How do you go about building the supply and demand of of a platform like this? So you always start out with uh, with demand, right? So we started out with demand, and then we were um, purchasing the supply on demand. So for the first year or so, we didn't uh, have any planning in place except those things that we would advertise, right? So we would say, look, these are the this is the range of products that we can make available to you, um, and then let us know if you want it um, by actually checking out. So demand is always first, and then you build supply. Now, these days, it's a little different, right? You have a lot more planning, and the scale is very different. We have a very professional team that does supply planning and demand planning, and we get better terms and so forth. So it's very different. But you start out with demand, uh, make it always. Uh, at least that, that's what we did. And is that like via a data, via a maybe like buttons that you put in, and if enough people click on it, then you get an idea? Or, or how do you really capture that demand? Well, first, for us, it was like that, at least. You got to form an opinion around um, what are likely going to be the top products that people want, right? Or in a more meta level, 
you, you got to offer your service to people and see whether this is working, right? You cannot uh, just survey your your routes to success and like, okay, what do you want, right? You got to really make sure and put it out there. And so what, that's what we did uh, at the beginning is get your latest tech on demand and we put the product pictures up and put a monthly price on it. And then we noticed, okay, people are actually transacting on it. Um, and then we had a product selection and so forth. But we also had a little tool, which was request your product. And we were capturing demand for products that weren't available through that tool. So that inspired us. Um, and over time, obviously, you put a lot more products on the website and you see what is the uh, interaction uh, with those products um, with your traffic. And how does that really match together? And then obviously, at the next level, you see what is the customer behavior depending on what, the, what what things they are renting and how does that work out and you really try to get more efficient over time but at the beginning it's uh, as stupid as getting something up and seeing whether somebody clicks on it and transacts got it so so just out of curiosity what what is the coolest product that you've seen lately that you guys have launched the coolest product uh Let's see. I think the the the, the Samsung flip phone is about one of the coolest ones. I think we're launching. Um, nice. Yeah. I mean, look, we have a lot in the in the smart home category. We have a lot of things that that are quite uh, um, quite new. I mean, we have uh, also electric vacuum cleaners there, uh, which we don't invest in a lot in, but we see whether they are uh, happening. So we have some experimental things, but typically the top category smartphones and tablets and computers and audio and so forth are going uh, very well. There's a lot of demand for that uh, for your uh, everyday tech. Uh, gaming very much as well, in particular during Corona. Gaming demand is high. Um, and um, yeah, we're also launching a Grover Scooter soon. Got it. I mean, obviously you guys are starting with a store and then building up into a mall. So I'm just wondering like what, you know, the future holds for this. So in that regard, Michael, imagine you go to bed tonight. And you go to sleep for five years. I mean, in unbelievable snooze, right? And then you wake up in a world five years later where the vision of Grover is completely realized. What does that world look like? So it's a combination of uh, your having subscription demand on Grover, but also you eventually managing uh, your financial journey with us, right? So the world looks like you have a subscription, like an all-you-can-eat subscription with Grover. It costs you maybe 99 euros a month. You rent three products. Um, you manage those subscriptions in the Grover app. Um, you have a Grover debit card, maybe, and uh, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll have no reason to either purchase things all elsewhere or to um, finance things elsewhere. Got it. So, so if I was to tell you, I mean, there's, there's one question that I typically ask the guests that come on the show, and that is, if you had the opportunity to speak with your younger self, with that younger Michael, maybe that younger Michael that was still at Rocket Rocket Internet and thinking about maybe like launching something in the future, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and obviously knowing what you know now, I mean, you've been five years at it, you know, hyper growth, incredible uh, success that you've been able to, to achieve here. But obviously there's many ups, there's many downs, and it's not a straight line. So if you had that chance to give yourself one piece of business advice before launching a business to that younger Michael, what would you tell yourself and why, knowing what you know now? Yeah, good question. I think I would say believe in yourself. So I always believe in myself and have a strong conviction about the, the things that I do. Um, but obviously, 
you as an entrepreneur you learn a lot as well right and you will make thousands of mistakes always and depending on what kind of mistakes you make people may think you're stupid or not and you know everybody thinks something and then if you fundraise thousands of people tell you no and are arrogant or this and that and i mean you just got to have such a uh, thick skin as an entrepreneur um that you really got to believe in yourself and obviously you cannot be numb to to feedback and you want to learn and you want to improve or you know in a way but at the end of the day feedback is uh 2020 uh, how do you call it hindsight is 2020 feedback is 2020 as well like if you fundraise for instance it's a feedback of plus and minus some people tell you uh, your internationalization plans are too ambitious. That's why we don't invest. Other people tell you, you guys are not international yet. That's why, I you know, at the end of the day, everybody tells you or whatever somebody tells you is also a reflection of themselves. So you really got to figure out what is your center of confidence? What, what are you really truly believing? And is this the right thing um, to think about it in a way? So believing believe in yourself is the most important part, I think. And this will help you up help you out uh, standing up to things, believing in, 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 in your vision, in your imagination, and, and just keep, keep going forward at all times. I love it. So, Michael, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, reach me on LinkedIn, Michael Castle. Amazing. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you, likewise. It was a pleasure. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.